This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What's going on, everybody? I'm Mara. And I'm Tez. And welcome back to Sisters Who Kill. Put a little razzle-dazzle on it. When you're fighting for your life, will the justice system fight for you or against you? If you're listening to this, you probably already know what I'm about to say, that today is the day for you to start your podcast. You have everything that you need, your computer, a little microphone, and Spotify for podcasters. It is the all-in-one platform where you can host, edit, and record your podcast and distribute it everywhere. Where you're listening right now, you can have your podcast there. I promise, for real. And it's free. And you can make some money off of your podcast for free. Free money. Free money is out there. Just go get it by starting your podcast today. Our players this week are Jeffrey Brown, Sherelle's boyfriend and our victim, and Sherelle Baldwin, our murderess. Sherelle Baldwin was born in 1992, either 92 or 91. I could not find an exact date of birth for her, but she's a 90s baby. To her parents, Cindy Long and her father, Bernard Baldwin Sr. She was born in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and her mom raised her as a single mom. They came from a huge family that was loving, supporting, and they would love to get together often. In 2010, when Sherelle was 19 years old, she was a student at Porter and Chester Institute in Stratford, Connecticut. She was studying to become a medical specialist administrator and also working two jobs at the time. She had dreams of becoming a RN. Now, I don't have much about Sherelle's upbringing, but I know that her and her mom are extremely close. They love each other. They go very hard for each other. And in 2011, when she was 19 years old, You know, she was 19, trying to figure out who was out there in the world and does what most people do and starts online dating. She goes to find a love connection, and she finds Jeffrey Allen Brown Sr. Now, Jeffrey Allen Brown Sr. was born on June 21st, 1988 in Bridgeport, Connecticut, to his parents, Greta Brown and Jeffrey Allen Hines. He was a student from the Bridgeport school system, and he was employed by We Transport Incorporated. For a little while. He ain't have a job for this full story, just FYI. According to Google, he was a member of the Holy Tabernacle Church. Not sure if he was a member, if his parents were a member, and he was just a member that way. But there isn't much information else about him or his upbringing. When the two met online, they hit it off, and Sherelle described their relationship as lust. It really started off with them just messing around, you know, trying to enjoy each other's company. Now... At the time, Sherelle was living with her mom, Cindy, and 
next thing Cindy knows, Sherelle not coming home at night. I mean, Sherelle was over at Jeffrey's. They were doing what it do. And they would spend the nights together. And at one point, she even tried to help him get a job at Federal Express, but the job fell through. Trying to do whatever she can for her now, ma'am. They were young, they were messing around, and it was all fun and games until Sherelle found out that she was pregnant. This relationship, yeah, had been going on for a little while, but it was pretty low-key. So much low-key that Sherelle's parents didn't meet Jeffrey until two months after she found out that she was pregnant. And at first, in Sherelle's eyes, Jeffrey's a half-decent human being. Like, he's really nice, he makes good conversation. And then she found out that he was a drug dealer, soon to find out that he was very abusive and of course he loved to cheat on her did you hear that she also didn't even know his real name at this point stop it he introduced her when 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 she first met him he said his name was like jonathan or something and that he had like an actual job and it wasn't until around this time that she learns his name is actually jeffrey and he's a drug dealer Imagine getting pregnant and then finding out the nigga real name. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot for me to handle. So this is what kills me. Sherelle finds out his name is fake. She knows that she's pregnant. She's young. And in her mind, she's like, okay, I have a baby now. Like, we need to try to make this relationship work. We need to be a real couple. We're trying to make the family thing work because we have a kid together, right? So they say. Insert right. huge eye roll. <laughs> You do not need to be together to make a happy home for your kids. I have never once in my life wished my parents be together. <laughs> like, why Why have the drama? I'd rather y'all be separate and friends than together and miserable. Like we said, Sherelle and her family, they're all very close, and they're starting to notice some changes in Sherelle. Like, one time they go on a family trip to Miami, and Jeffrey's on a trip as well, and the family's all hanging out, and they're like, oh, where's Sherelle, where's Sherelle? Turns out she's in a hotel, and Jeffrey's not letting her leave, not letting her hang out with her family. And that that is sign one. (laughs) If you're looking for early signs, that is sign one. (laughs) Right. Like, all of a sudden, you used to be around your family, now we can't we can't even get you to show up to the family functions. Not even not even the in events. Miami. Right. Why are y'all right. on like, vacation? We're in vac we're on vacation. I could even see if like we were on family vacation and they were like, Oh, they wanna have a date at the beach, so they gonna miss this event. No, she was in the hotel room. Uh, what's the fucking point? You wasted Cause he, money. Cause he said so. Yeah. Miami ain't cheap. Her mom, Cynthia, says that Jeffrey seemed to have this control over Sherelle and that when she would come to the family functions, Jeffrey's always ready to go and Sherelle had to be ready to leave when he left because you come with me, you leave with me. But, like, if I'm at my family function, I'm probably not trying to be the first to leave because I'm hanging out with my family, who I enjoy. (laughs) So she, she also noticed that Sherelle would like start checking in with Jeffrey more often like but like certain simple decisions that you should and previously could make by yourself is all of a sudden uh let me check with Jeffrey that's sign number two guys now Cynthia knows this to be out of character for Sherelle like 
She said, quote, she's always made her own decisions and she's pretty much held her own. But when Jeffrey came, it was a whole different story, which is it's not fun to see. Right. Especially when you do come from a tight family and you see that person pulling away and nothing, even if you do notice the signs, nothing you really say can help it. Like all you can do is support them and be ready for them when they're ready to walk away. You know what I mean? Right. But, like, I know it was probably definitely hard on their family because not only not only are you losing this relationship with your cousin, your sister, your mom, or whatever, but, like, you also know that shit ain't sweet. Like, it'd be one thing if they, she just left to jet-set the world and we never saw her because she's always traveling, living her best life, but for you to miss out on all the things and and even when you are at the things you don't get to enjoy them to the full capacity because somebody wants to be over you and put you down and make you feel wrong like it's it's definitely sad to sit back and see and her mom's not the only person who notices her pulling away from her family she even has a cousin Latrice and they were close close right but Jeffrey comes along and all of a sudden, they barely see each other. They barely talk. And at first, Latrice is like, you know, she's in a new relationship. They cupcaking. She's working two jobs. She's busy. She's tired. Don't take it personal. But once the other signs start coming out, then it's like, again, it's it's not for a good reason. It's not for a happy reason. It's It's dark. It's sad. And you don't ever want to see a family member in that position. So things begin to get a little worse. It's no longer just she can't be around her family and shit is hard at home. Shit's now becoming hard outside of the house. Like Jeffrey's losing his temper. He's coming up to her jobs acting crazy. Don't play with my money, okay? Keep that bullshit at home. On top of showing up at her job, he flattening her tires. He's emptying her bank accounts. He's taking her keys so she don't leave. Taking money out of her purse. She, at this point, she's still telling everybody, no, no, he didn't put his hands on me. Like, he's just, you know, that's just how he is. Or he just gets a little upset. Or I just did this, you know. Latrice thinks... Now, Latrice has had her suspicions about this man, but she thinks that Sherelle is just, like, you know, trying to protect her man, keep it in the house, you know, and not put her family in harm's way. Latrice is like, I think she didn't want us to feel the wrath. So that was another reason why she kept to herself and in the house. Right. So at this point, Sherelle is very pregnant. She is actually about to pop. And Sherelle ends up calling her mom and asks her mom if she can just spend the night at her house. And of course, her mom's like, of course, baby, come over. And then when Sherelle, who is about like a couple of weeks before she actually gave birth, Sherelle's mom is looking at her and Cynthia's like, baby, why are you tossing and turning and acting like you can't sleep at night? And she's in the middle of her sleep. She's clearly having a nightmare. She's crying. And... You know your kid, right? Like, 
they ain't been in a relationship too long. You just moved out of her house. She know you, and you're not a nightmare-prone type of person. She just noticed it, and she thought it was very weird because even if she did have a nightmare, like, as a kid, it wasn't like this. Like, this is clearly trauma-induced, you know? Near the end of 2011, she did give birth to her baby boy, and the baby's name was Jeffrey Brown Jr., but we just gonna call him Jr. Here it is. Baby is here. It's New Year's Day 2012, and Sherelle finds out that Jeffrey totaled her car. Totaled her car. And are you gonna fix it? No, you're not. No. He ain't got no money. And of course, Sherelle is like, okay, well, what happened? Can you explain to me what was actually going on? And of course, Jeffrey, he ain't got no good explanation. And what do niggas do when they got, ain't got no good explanation? They get mad. He got so upset that he started shaking her while she's holding their newborn baby. Why are you trying You trying to give our baby shaking baby syndrome? That's exactly what this? I was about to say. Like, why are you even... I'm holding your seed. So, Sherelle ends up calling her mother... Her mom is getting dressed. Is like, okay, bet I'm on my way down there. She comes down there to get her grandbaby. But when she's on her way down, Sherelle's like, oh, mama, you ain't got to come because Jeffrey's mom is coming and going to get the baby instead. And Miss Cynthia's like, mm. she's like, I just wish that you would let me come and get the baby. But, you know, other grandma, okay, she doesn't have a good feeling about this at all. But letting people make their own decisions, right? And this is the first time that she's even telling her mother about any physical altercation between the two, which is doubly scary for Cynthia. So the two of them are still living together. Mind you, he's a full-time drug dealer, but broke. Don't know how that works. And he made her lose her job. So somebody's got to get a real job around here. It's a real job that they can claim on taxes. Or, and, you know, use to get in a fucking apartment and shit. You know, If you did something. drug dealers with no fucking credit. Be the main ones. But puffing their chest out like they got something mm-hmm. for real. I got money. I got money. And what can you do with it? Nothing. Not a damn Meanwhile, thing. Meanwhile, you still asking me to rent a car in my name because you ain't got a credit card to put down. Come on, somebody. And so she ended up getting a job at Yale New Haven Hospital, working towards her goals to better herself and her family, right? Jeffrey, full-time drug dealer, but not making a lot of money, and he also stays at home with the baby, so he's kind of playing baby daddy, right? And when she was at work or when she was at home, whenever he felt like it, he would take her phone. So she wasn't able to communicate with her friends. She wasn't able to communicate with her family. He would just, like, take the baby whenever he felt like it, wherever he felt like it. Y'all know y'all do not play with a mama and her kids. Don't take my Especially baby. a newborn and the, the first one. Come on now. Right. She come home, ain't got no phone. He gone, the baby gone for hours on end. Baby, that's kidnapping. You take my child and I don't know where it is. That is kidnapping. You are kidnapping my child. And not answering me when I ask you. Not answering my calls. Exactly. That's crazy. And you take the child gone all night long, not coming home until the next morning, coming home the next morning late as hell, and I'm trying to get to work. I'm constantly late for work because you are bringing home the car late, and because she constantly was late for work because of his dumb shit, she got fired from this job. Don't play with my money, Smokey. So it's February 24th of 2013, and Jeffrey's back on his bullshit, throwing Sherelle's clothes out of her house that she paid for with her money. And she's sitting there trying to call 911, and Jeffrey rips the phone out of her hand and throws it to the ground. 
she does end up being able to get to the police there and he was arrested and he and Sherelle broke up. And so during this time, he allegedly went to go live with another woman, sometimes sleeping at his mom's house, but on somebody's couch, didn't hold his own. But still, throughout all this time, is harassing Sherelle. He's calling her. He's texting her all the time. It's like, I thought we were over, but like, it's giving, don't you ever move on from me. You'll never have somebody who will be there for you like me. You'll never have anything better than this. And it's not true. Anybody experiencing this, that is bottom. Okay? I don't care if he's paying you $10,000 a day. That's bottom, bottom shit. And you, everybody is so much better than to receive that shit. Right? Like, period. There is somebody who will treat you better than that. And there's nothing you did to deserve it. No excuse for it. It was wrong, you know? And we got to get out the habit of letting our niggas embarrass us in the house, right? Like, we think it's okay just because it's close to home. You know, I won't tell nobody and, you know, we'll work it out. That nigga keep embarrassing you inside your house? Then fuck that shit. You know what I mean? Like, right. even like if, even though it don't happen in front bitch. of people, even though it doesn't happen in front of people, you still feel that embarrassing shame. And don't let nobody make you feel shame about yourself. Because for what? Mm-hmm. You, you can't rent a car. You can't even book a trip on your own. Like, what? So what could, You're what a man child. So he's doing all this shit, and she's still trying to be a good person. She's trying to give him time to see his son. And instead of kicking it with his junior, she's still getting abused by this nigga. And on top of that, guys... He's abusing the dog, too, which, how the fuck did he get into it? They've got this little... Why am I in it? <laughs> why, why is he in it? They got this little Yorkshire Terrier, and he would put the dog in a plastic bag and then start banging the dog against the wall. Like, and I know why he did it. He did it to fuck with her, and that's some sick-ass shit. He would stalk her. He's back to slashing her tires, putting his hands on her. And every time she tries to leave, it just gets worse. It's like at this point, it's easier to stay. It's less drama to stay. He's just really overall this toxic ass nigga. Choking her, pulling her hair. He done went past stalking her. And now he's circling her mom's house looking for her. Like, boy, people have to have limits, right? Like... Even right. if a nigga act crazy, they'll act crazy in your spot, but they know not to act crazy in your mama's spot. You know what I mean? Usually there's some boundaries. There's with some their boundaries. He at the job. He breaking windows, getting her house. You're doing too much. So at this point, her cousin Latrice is like, really, she said, quote, really, really scared. Sherelle asked Latrice to start watching a baby for her so she could start a new job. And one time when she came to pick her son up, Latrice had to follow her home because Jeffrey was following her to the house to pick up her son. Like, and that's when you know niggas start escalating. When, like, really when they have no shame who they do it around, it's only getting worse at that point. So pretty much Jeffrey would show up without any rhyme or reason. He started going the fuck off on everybody, on everything for no rhyme or reason. And Sherelle at this point, she's like, you know what? My son need a new pappy. My son need a new pappy. You heard that song? I love that ratchet ass song. 
And she's just, like, figuring out. She's like, you know what? I'm better than this. Like, it maybe it is stepdaddy season. Maybe I can see <laughs> Come on, my life without season. him in it. And it wasn't right. And she wasn't saying it like, oh, I want to murder him. She was really saying, like, maybe it's stepdaddy season. <laughs> like, maybe Junior is just going to, we just going to know him as Junior. And he not going to really understand what Junior means. You know what I'm saying? Like, because everything with him was escalating. Jeffrey was constantly getting worse. So on May 8th, they're arguing again. Jeffrey's going off again. Finally, Sherelle is able to get on the phone with the police. Because remember, most times she calls, he's taking her phone from her. And he's arrested for breach of peace. Now, after this arrest, they have a court date. She shows up at court and she's telling them about, you know, he threatens me. He's constantly harassing me everywhere I go, stalking me. He's assaulting me. He's supposed to be visiting our son, but instead he's beating up on me. The court is like, okay, we will put a protective order in place. Now, statistically, People that have restraining orders, only about 50% of people actually honor the restraining order put in place. Two days after court, Jeffrey shows up to Sherelle's house, scoops up Junior, goes out the house, and Sherelle's like, where are you going with my baby? So she has to get in her car and chase Jeffrey down the damn street. She driving all on the wrong side of the road because she is trying to figure out why this man is kidnapping her child. That settles over. She gets her baby back, and it's Mother's Day of 2013. Sherelle is out with her mom and Junior, just trying to enjoy, you know, Mother's Day. And Jeffrey calls cousin Latrice and is like, yo, where is Sherelle? And I got a problem with Latrice because apparently Latrice was like, oh, she said this uh, restaurant celebrated Mother's Day. Bitch, you know that he is abusive. You know I'm scared of him. Why are you telling him where I'm at? He pulls up at the restaurant he getting ready to cause a scene. He's like, bring my son outside. Bring my son outside. Don't make me fucking act up in this bitch. And she, of course, is like, oh, we're out in public. I'm not trying to have a scene here. So she ends up leaving and going with Jeffrey. So that was Mother's Day of 2013. I believe that was May 12th, 2013. A couple of days later, on May 16th, 2013, Jeffrey decided today that he's on one again. And he's texting Sherelle. He texts her 36 times. Most of the time on this one, he was like, yo, baby, I'm sorry. You know I love you, girl. I know I know we've been going through it, but you know it's all love. I care for you, boo. I care for you. You know I want some pussy now. You know I want some. Chill you out. know I, you know. It, it, sir, we have a restraining order. Why are you texting my phone asking me for some cat? You're not getting none. But that's that manipulation. Like, you know you want this, girl. You know you love this. Baby. Ain't, ain't ain't no peen that good. And Sherelle even tells him in those text messages, she's like, no, like, we're not going to do this. I don't think you know that we need to move on from each other. We need to not have this. And he didn't like that. So the very next day, he decided, you know what? I'm really upset that last night she didn't give me no cat. And he starts texting her at 7.30 a.m. on the dot, talk, calling her all types of things, everything but a child of God, cussing her out, telling her, Oh, you're going to learn. You're going to learn. And then he didn't stop texting her just back to back to back to back to back until after midnight. And he's texting her scary stuff like, I'm right behind you. It's got to be like, I feel like getting stalked is so scary because you're never at peace. And then it's just like, you don't want to stay home. You don't necessarily want to be out with your friends because then he out wilding in front of your friends. Like you just, you want to run for cover. And then when you run for cover and they still not fucking scared, you know what I mean? 
So it's 6.30 a.m. and Sherelle's phone is blowing up with texts from Jeffrey. And he's saying things like, I hope you got insurance on everybody. It's DOA on site. He sent this twice and accused her of lying, but it's not clear what she was lying about. And Shell responds, quote, leave me alone, followed by five exclamation points. He responded, and you will see how crazy shit get today. Like, there is no peace. So there not, is no peace. Not long after those messages, Jeffrey breaks into Sherelle's house through a window, goes into her bedroom, and yanks her off the bed by her hair. And he said, quote, you always think I'm playing with you. Now, Junior is 15 months laying on the bed with Sherelle, but does Jeffrey care? Nope. He then takes off his belt and starts whooping her on her back and arms and then takes the belt and begins choking her with it. And then that's so scary because, like, he's already threatening you. You think you got the house ready, and here he is out of nowhere inside the house. Deadass whooping your ass. Coming out of nowhere. Through the fucking windows. After a while, her body begins to go limp, and I think she kind of passes out for a little bit or is, like, disconnected from a little bit. She comes back, and she knees him, gets up, and she starts making a mad dash for her car. She goes through the kitchen, swipes her key, and ran out the front door. When I'm telling you she was running so fast and trying to escape so bad, she she's got she's nearsighted as fuck, like needs glasses or contacts. She don't got neither one of them in. She don't got no shoes on her feet. She don't even got her baby. She's literally just trying to escape his grip because he is on a rampage. In her nightgown, she leaves with Junior in the bedroom crying out, Mommy, Mommy. She runs to the street, and eventually she makes it to her car where Jeffrey followed her and got into the passenger seat. In the car, he's still attacking her, strangling her, and she's just trying to drive off and get away from him, begging Jeffrey, please let me go. Please let me get back to my baby, please. And he just starts choking her again. The car's on at this point, and she's just trying to drive away and escape him. She manages to get the car out the driveway, and once she got out, end up having like to stop or park it a bit because he's got this belt in his hand still choking her out. So Sherelle's sitting in a driver's seat, the car is running, and Jeffrey starts to come around the front of the car to go and attack her from the driver's side. At that moment, Sherelle steps on the gas, but she hadn't hurt him in any major way yet. Jeffrey was hanging on the hood of the car, still talking shit, and then she rammed the car into the neighbor's garage wall. At that point, Jeffrey was pinned between the car and the wall of the garage, and somehow Sherelle is on the ground with a broken leg and a concussion. Now, none of the articles that I read specified who called the police that night. I'm probably assuming one of the neighbors because, hey, yo, like, my garage. And it seemed like it was an apartment, so maybe it was one of those... You know how some apartment complexes have garages, options? Mm -hmm. So it was like one of those. But the Bridgepoint Police and Fire Department arrives at the scene at 8.42 a.m. that morning. When they get there, they find that Jeffrey is still pinned behind the garage of the car. He clearly is deceased. The car is still running. They tried to revive him, but he was already gone. And they also found the belt still in his hand, and her purse was underneath his body. So clearly he was he had his weapon and her property. Just saying. 
Sherelle is outside of the car. She is laying down. Her leg is broken. And she's literally going in and out of consciousness at this time. When the firefighter got to her, he kept asking her what was going on. And all she kept saying was, like, the baby is still inside. The baby's inside by by itself. Like, she's trying to tell the first responders to go check on my child before you even come and check on me. Again, officers are trying to figure out what happened. How did this go? And she can't really say much. But all she is saying is, like, go get my baby. And he was trying to kill me. My baby's inside. He was trying to kill me. Now, the police, they were seeing what they called red flags all over the scene, what they called red flags. They wrote in their affidavit that her statement didn't match up with what they found as physical evidence. They said that they believed that she had, quote, ample time to consider the actions she took before the events that caused and led to the death of Jeffrey Brown, end quote, which already have a problem there, but okay. They also noted that the way that Jeffrey was pinned, there wasn't enough room for Jeffrey to get out of the passenger side and walk to the front of the car, like where the car started. And it's like, you don't know what that nigga could do. Adrenaline make niggas skinny, fat, strong. Adrenaline does a lot of things. So this is what the initial responding officers wrote up. And the day that it happened, no one really looked into her in- her injuries. Yes, she was treated for the concussion, but no one looked at her body. The police were like, well, we think that this was a domestic incident. It's domestic homicide. Let's go ahead and continue to investigate this. Sherelle, now, she wasn't arrested just yet. They still had to get some things together before she was arrested. And she wasn't checked out by a doctor for the lashings that she had. But it wasn't until two days, count them, two days after Jeff died that Sherelle was with her mom. And she was just like, my back hurts. Like, my neck hurts. Like, everything hurts. Her mom was like, well, let me see your back. Pulls up the back of Sherelle's shirt. And her mom can see all the whip marks going all the way down her back. Bruises on her neck. And her mom is like, oh, my gosh. Takes her back to the hospital. Starts taking pictures of everything. Because y'all not finna say that this didn't happen. Now, she tells the police her mama is no... No quiet chicken, okay? Quiet Her mama chicken. is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say spring, spring chicken, chicken, but I couldn't. And spring chicken it. was in my head too, and then you said quiet. <laughs> um. Now, her mom wasn't no quiet person. She was very vocal about her daughter. Like I said, her and her daughter were extremely close. So she tells the police officers about these marks. She shows the p- pictures to the police, and they're like, mm, skin's starting to heal, we'll see. Nothing. They seem to, like, not even care. Detective Hector Teseria was the lead detective on this case, and for three weeks, he, quote, interviewed a large number of people to get a clear understanding of what happened and work by the crime scene unit and accident investigators was the key to getting the truth. Detective Hector interviews Sherelle, who who basically tells him everything that Mirage just told Jaw, but... He's like, "Mm, I'm having a hard time seeing your story being the one that plays out. So he's like, he's gone over numerous interviews and her story would change slightly, but he was, but it's not clear to what degree. You know what I mean? The detective is also like, when he got to the scene, Sherelle had no belt strangulations on her neck and he basically said she didn't look, quote, too disheveled. In any way, which I find that very hard to believe. One, because she fucking broke her leg, which, yes, she was driving the car, but there's there's one. Two, her mama had to take her to the hospital two days later because she had welts on her back from the whooping that he gave her. 
that y'all didn't clear, care to look into. That y'all didn't care to look into. In his investigation, he found that Sherelle's car, a red Pontiac, traveled 100 feet before it hit Jeffrey. So it really ain't even go nowhere. Because you know how fast a car does 100 feet? They said it appeared that the car was accelerating the entire time and had no sign of braking. And this is according to a Trumbull police accident reconstructionist. He says that this car hit this cinder block wall so hard that it moved more than 10 inches. They're like, Sherelle, you broke your leg from being in the driver's seat and having your foot on the gas. And when the car hit that wall, it broke your leg. But that ain't had nothing to do with Jeffrey. Right. But what does that have to do with Jeffrey? They also say it doesn't look like Jeffrey broke into the house, probably because he's a pro at this fucking point. The police chief, Joseph Gaudet Jr., says it took a couple of weeks for the authorities to determine that criminal charges were appropriate in this instance. And after three weeks, they determined that they were. Streaming October 6th on Paramount+. Plus. First place I learned about death was a pet cemetery. Dead things buried in that land would come back. There's something else. Something's wrong with Timmy. He needs time to adjust. That's not Timmy. Something's talking through him. Sometimes dead is better. Pet Cemetery, Bloodlines, Rated R, streaming only on Paramount Plus. Instacart helps you get beer and wine delivered in as fast as an hour. So, whether you need to fill the cooler for tailgate season or Fill your glass for Pinot by the fire season. You can save time by getting fall sips delivered in just a few clicks. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Must be 21 or over for alcohol delivery where available. Instacart. Add life to cart. Three weeks later, an arrest warrant came in the mail for Sherelle. It came in the mail... She was probably expecting this, and her and her family went down to the precinct together so that she could turn herself in. From there, that Monday, June 10th, 2013, she was arrested for her role in the May 18th incident. Now, she was charged with murder and taken to the York Correctional Institution, which is not a jail. It is a prison. Connecticut's got some weird things going around. And you, while you're waiting trial and things, you go to prison there. She was not in a jail. She stands in front of the judge finally, and the bail staff recommends a bond of $500,000. The judge said, "Mm, no, her bail is going to be set at a million dollars. Now, remember, she's there still with a broken foot because this is only a couple of weeks later. She's in a wheelchair. Right. And of course, who is going to be able to pay in a a million dollar bail? Her mom was like, ain't nobody in Bridgeport got that kind of money because we know how race and class affects the judicial system. You know damn well that girl ain't got that type of money. And you just want to be as the court system say, well, we gave her the option to bail while she was like, right. You might as well just say no bail because you don't want them to be able to attain it. So let's just be real. While she was awaiting trial. Every other weekend, when it was Miss Cheryl's weekend with Junior, she would make sure that she brought her grandbaby up to see his mama. And he, of course, was extremely young at this time, 15 months when it happened. And in his mind, you know, his mama's wearing a burgundy shirt, 
wearing khakis. And so he didn't really know that his mom was in jail. You know, he's a kid. He just thought that mommy was at school, that she was away at school. And she looked like she was at school because that's how the school kids dressed. Now, I did see on a blog site somewhere And in this blog site, it alleged that Jeffrey's family was really trying hard to keep Junior away from Sherelle's mom and Sherelle's family. I don't know how true that is, but there was definitely a lot of drama between the families leading up to the trial. And even in the courtroom, you'll see relatives of Jeffrey and Sherelle, they did multiple hearings. They were talking to the public. They, of course, Sherelle's people is like, she is clearly being wrongfully accused. This is a domestic violence self-defense case. And... As I'm sure you all can guess, Jeffrey's family said that there was absolutely no way that Jeffrey was abusive. He's the sweetest. He's a dumpling. There's no way he wouldn't hurt a fly, which is so typical. Sherelle's mom says, quote, I know she was very afraid of him. She said that Jeffrey's abuse towards Sherelle only increased after his May 8th arrest. She saw the crazy text messages that he would send her and how he would threaten her. She said, quote, she should have been able to live her life without him harassing her. Jeffrey wanted full control, and he couldn't have it anymore. Sherelle had moved on with her life. Sherelle's mom, not only did she see these text messages, but she brought the phone to the police officers and was like, look at these messages. Don't you want to take her phone as evidence? And they said, no, we don't need that. Sherelle's mom said that this case was a waste of taxpayer money. Like, for y'all to even charge her for trying to escape this man when all the signs are pointing that he's abusive. Right. Right. She was like, it's honestly a waste of time. Sherelle's older sister, Tanika Long, said, quote, my sister is innocent. She has been domestically abused by him for a year. Justice needs to be served for Sherelle. She is the real victim here. Now, Jeffrey's family denied that their son had a history of domestic violence, and they didn't believe that Sherelle was acting in self-defense. Greta, Jeffrey's mom, said that it's more than plausible that Sherelle was jealous about Jeffrey dating somebody else. She said, quote, I want justice for my son because he did not deserve to die like that. There was no abuse. His dad said that someone must be held accountable for his son's death. He said, quote, in society, you don't murder somebody because you're angry. Um, Also in society, you don't hit somebody because you're angry. (laughs) Also in society, you don't stalk people. In society, you don't show up to people's job harassing them to the point where they're getting fired. It took two years for Sherelle's case to go to trial. She was arrested in 2013 and did not go on trial until 2015. Now, during this time that she was waiting for trial, Countless domestic violent groups began reaching out, offering their support, begging the state attorney to drop the charges. Many of the groups said that Cheryl was just another black woman who suffered from domestic violence, and instead of getting help and support, she was arrested and given a ridiculous bond for trying to free herself. She had no criminal record. She had an astronomical, like, there was no way for her to really get out of jail. They said a total of 38 domestic violence organizations reached out to her. And this was really carrying her through and giving her hope because it went from, wow, I'm really facing 60 years to life for this shit to, 
wow, somebody out there cares about me. Another person out there cares about me. All these people are rallying together concerned about what happens to me. And I feel like that's that morale boost that you need to keep going because it is not fun. Especially not when you all. really, and truly don't deserve to be there. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And then Sherelle's mom said that at first nobody would pick up the case. Like when I tell you her mama was out in these streets, her family was out in these streets. They were like, nobody's picking up this case. No media outlets are doing anything. Of course, the family doesn't have that type of money to pay for a good lawyer, to pay for all of these things. But they're trying to scrape up any type of resource that they could. I saw this interview with Sherelle and she was saying it was quiet and I was lonely and I was sad. And all of a sudden my mom called me and was like, hey, I got a whole bunch of letters. These people are supporting you. And she's like, people are supporting me. And she's like, yeah, I got these people like talking. And her mom came and dropped off a whole bunch of like letters of support and people just saying, you know, keep your head up. We're fighting for you on the outside. And it's just amazing, especially when you're in this dark, lonely place and you know that your case is not getting a lot of attention and you know that the odds are stacked up against you. And all of a sudden there's just an inpour of love. At some point in this trial, it says that the families got into a fight at the courthouse and the state police had to break it up. Like, it is definitely stressful, tense. You can cut it with a knife, like, going through it. There's, it's February 2015. Her trial is going on. She did have an initial lawyer, but that initial lawyer, even though the lawyer was strong, was not versed in murder trials. So she ended up getting a lawyer, Miles Garetti, who decided to step in and help her with her trial. The evidence is laid out. Prosecution gives their statement. The defense is going really hard. And they wait to see what happens. There were five long days of deliberation, which is terrifying. So you don't know what the jury is thinking. You don't know who in the deliberation room is acting up or wants to see things. And finally, they found out that the jury was hung. They could not come to a unanimous decision. And it wasn't just hung evenly. It was 11 to 1, 11 people in favor of Sherelle being acquitted. And one probably old white man, I'm sure it was, <laughs> it, it was either an old white man or a hotep-ass nigga. It was one or the other. I just, I just feel it in my chili bones <laughs> that wanted her to be sentenced and put in prison for the crime. After it was declared a mistrial, the jurors, they were like, listen, we really feel that the judge, we really feel like the charges should be reduced. We feel like the charges honestly should be dropped. And she has to to go back to prison because she's not in jail. She's in a prison. She has to go back to prison and figure out what is going to happen. Her life is now back in limbo. So after this trial, the DA's office like, listen, Sherelle, Mr. Sherelle's lawyer, how about we work out a plea deal? Okay, we can just go ahead and get this taken care of. She can plead guilty and we can just wash our hands of this. But her family and her and her lawyer are like, uh, no, it was hung in our favor. We absolutely want to go back to trial. So they stand in front of the judge. Her lawyer had to beg for a trial. The DA was really trying to push for her to plead not guilty instead of giving her a trial. When they stand in front of the judge again, trying to figure out what's going to happen, one of the requests from the defense side was, well, can we reduce her bond? Clearly, 
the jury was in her favor for the most part. Is there a way that we can reduce her bond so that she can get out of prison, so that she can properly prepare for another trial? And the judge was like, "Mm, no, million dollar bond stands. Even at that bond hearing, Sherelle's lawyer claims, I didn't hear this anywhere else except for about this bond hearing. The lawyer claims that there was a neighbor, a witness that heard Sherelle screaming out, help, help, he's trying to kill me. Like, I'm trying to prove to you, judge, that this is a self-defense case, so let's reduce her bond so that we can properly get ready for trial. It took another year before Sherelle was able to sit in front of a jury again. Take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial. So on March 21st of 2016, Cheryl's back up at trial, and she once again pleads not guilty to the murder of Jeffrey Brown. Now, she's facing 25 to 60 years in prison, and they get into this trial. They've got the expert witness out. They've got the expert witnesses out. They start off with an emergency medicine physician and a non-fatal strangulation expert. Karen Jebenyuk testified for the defense that it was common for strangulation victims to not have any visible injuries after the attack. She said, quote, I've seen plenty of people who have reported being strangled with no marks at all. She went on to say that strangulation with a belt is common in domestic violence relationships because it can easily go undetected. On top of that, Sherelle's a dark-skinned woman, so don't bruise easily, and the bruises kind of blend in sometimes. But also, like, it's very true, without telling too much business. Tazzy, you remember when I was going through stuff, Mm -hmm. and you didn't see it until the next day. Like, I was sending pictures to people two days later because the day of, it didn't Mm -hmm. seem that bad. Mm -hmm. And And I'm light-skinned, so... Oh, my God, look. Right. So, come on. And you already know how medical folks and skin, they do just do not even understand. Not not just abuse or um, welts or bruises. Like, they have a hard time diagnosing normal skin issues to black people because they're like, oh, I didn't know it looked so different on black skin. Like, you're a doctor. Right. Fucking learn it. Cheryl's lawyer also said that the prosecution was purposefully ignoring the texts that Jeffrey sent the morning of the murder. He said that those texts are a clear indication of the abuse that Sherelle was experiencing and the need for her to defend herself. The quotes, the text said, quote, I'm going to show you today. And then he came over and showed her, like, it's, it's all adding up and you want to pretend like it's not. He also theorized that Jeffrey climbed onto the hood of the car as Sherelle was trying to get away and speed off. Basically, he slipped and got hit once the car came in contact with the wall. He's like, she she didn't intend to run over this man. This man is walking in front of the car. She been trying to drive this thing away from him, you know? So you try and walk in front of this car. You jumping on the hood of it. On top of this, the girl can't see. She's damn near blind at this point because she don't got no contacts or glasses in. She is literally just trying to put the car in motion. All she knows is go. There's no direction. There's no purpose. There's no destination. It's just go. The defense then calls Evan Stark to the stand, and Evan is a forensic social worker. 
he's also a retired professor and is an expert in interpersonal violence. So her lawyer has him come up here because he's like, the prosecution obviously refuses to, they either don't know or they refuse to acknowledge the dynamics of a domestic violence relationship. Because y'all were saying it doesn't add up and it's really lining up perfectly. But right. y'all want to act like y'all don't see the signs. So let me bring this expert in here to tell you what the signs are so you can see that it's actually adding all the way up. Literally, it was bad. They broke up. It got worse and worse and worse until he broke into her house trying to kill her. Sounds like a right out of a textbook, that one. Mm-hmm. So her mom gets up and she gives a statement and she says, quote, she had no intention to kill Jeffrey Brown. Her only intention was a desperate one, to get back to her baby, to avoid being a dead mother, to avoid being further strangled and beaten. Would any of us have done anything differently? Which I really think is true because I was wondering how, why did she get out the car? And I feel like she probably didn't even, adrenaline rush, she probably didn't even know her legs were broken until she tried to get out the car to go to her baby. Fell down again and realized that she was, and obviously when you're concussed, you she's concussed and her legs are broken now this is very weird so apparently Sherelle's dad also lived in the same apartment building like in the apartment upstairs from Sherelle and had no idea about any of this and everybody finds this really weird but it's very much as giving that it was Sherelle and her mom that were close even Sherelle says herself I was raised by a single mother and of course, he's like, you know, if I would have known any, if I knew any of this was going on, uh, things would have turned out differently. Yeah, I, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It just seems like they weren't that close because if she, if stuff was going on, she called her mom to go to her mom's house. She ain't called to go upstairs to your place. So that's what it's giving to me. I don't know. Now, the state, they were hung up on one detail in particular. Remember, in the story that Sherelle said, Jeffrey got in the car with her, was abusing her, and then got out of the car, seemingly to come around to the driver's side almost, right? They were like, the prosecution was like, there's no way. There is absolutely no way that he could have gotten out of the car the way that she said. One of the prosecutors said, quote, he was never in the car. She chased him down. She used her car like a gun. She pointed, aimed, and shot. She went on to say, in the car, she had many options. Jeffrey Brown did not have to die. End quote. I'm giving a very, I wish y'all could see my face, but it's a very stank face on my face right now. She goes on to say that, you know, maybe she was acting in self-defense, but here's another state where you have to try and retreat. Like, if you don't try to retreat, then it sounds like you were then the aggressor. And those are always a sticky situation. Like, you can't tell me that I was trying to retreat, but I was. He got out the car, and it was still headed towards me. Now, the defense is like, listen, there was a court order that was active and issued at the time of this event. There is no way that she should have had to retreat because he should have been around. There is literally an active court order against him right now saying that he should not be near her. He shouldn't have been threatening her. He shouldn't have been texting her all crazy. He should not have shown up at her place of residence. And especially, he should not have been putting his hands on her. The state then calls prosecutors. They then call the responding officers. And you know, they ain't nothing. 
and they're talking about her claims of self-defense. And, you know, the police officer like, listen, there was no room between the passenger door and the outside wall, like, of the garage where the car was. It's pretty impossible for him to go out and try and get in front. Like, we're not really buying it because there's so many intricacies here. But the prosecutor is like, listen, when they were texting that very morning, Sherelle sends him a selfie. So if she's sending him a selfie, is she scared of him? Is is he harassing her? She's sending him a selfie, which, yes, he was because you didn't bring up any of the other text messages that he sent her. And I also know that sometimes... You just be like, here, take your fucking selfie and go about your business. So they were really trying to, I don't know, what's the word that I'm trying to say? They were really trying to say that she wasn't as scared as she actually was. Again, the state and the jury not realizing the cycle of a domestic violent relationship because it's a mess. So Sherelle testifies in her own trial and she gave an account of her abuse that she suffered, her tumultuous relationship with Jeffrey, and the jurors could be seen physically shaking, like they were so distraught by the story that she was telling. She said, quote, everything happened so quick. All I could think about was my baby. I didn't mean to kill Jeffrey. At some point in her testimony, a recess had to be called because she began sobbing so heavily, like, even some of the jurors were crying. And she sits back down after her testimony back at the defense table, and she just continues to cry. Like, y'all got to understand. So this whole time that she's been locked up, these three years, she's grieving the death of her boyfriend. Like, she she didn't mean for this to happen. She didn't want her son's father out of his life forever. She's grieving the time she's missing out with her son. She's dreading her time. Like, it's it's... It's a fight every day. It was just really on display at her trial because it's it's heavy emotions. It's it this came out like how nobody wanted it to. There was right. there was no good outcome here for anybody. So Sherelle then gets cross examined by the state's attorney Pamela Esposito, and Pam says, "Quote: Did you ever threaten Jeffrey that you were going to replace him as the father for your son?" And Sherelle says, "Yes." And Pam says, and did you once tell Jeffrey that you hated him? And Sherelle says, yes. <laughs> and Pam says, isn't it weird that you hate this man and you're planning to find your son a new father, yet you still let him come around so frequently to see his son? Even after he was arrested for grabbing a cell phone or snatching a cell phone from you? And... Sh- Sherelle says it wasn't her intention to put Jeffrey in jail. That's not what she wants. Like, she just wants him to leave her the fuck alone. She just wants a little bit of peace in her life. Right. And if another nigga want to come take care of her better than he could, then that's another nigga's opportunity. You had your chance. You blew it. Your son is still in your life. But that don't mean I can't have my own family over here. All of this, this whole trial is lasting over the course of six weeks. It goes to the jury, and after about two days of deliberation, seven women and five men find her not guilty on all five counts. When she heard the verdict, she collapsed, and she said, My baby, my baby will have his mommy back, and she just falls out on the floor. 
Her mom said, quote, I said all along my daughter was innocent, but they held her here for three years. Jeffrey's dad was quoted saying, not guilty is not guilty. What are you going to do? The jury made a decision, and you have to respect that. They said that he was wearing this ring that had the scales of justice on it, and he was like, at the end of the day, I believe in the justice system, and if the justice system ruled this, then that's just how the justice system works. They take her back, and she begins to get processed out of the system, and on April 1st of 2016, she was a free woman. Less than an hour later, she was released. Well, on her first day out, she was with her family, and she went to Walmart. And actually, when she was in Walmart, she ran into the four women of her trial. So immediately, they recognized each other. The four women came up, and she just gave her a hug. And she was just like, I'm so happy for you. You definitely deserve to be home. But at this point, yes, I see you. But her main goal was to get back to Junior. She had a few things to take to be taken care of. I think the very next day, she was interviewed on TV for Democracy Now!, where she got to tell a little bit of her story and everything that she's gone through. And she was telling them the only thing that she wants to do right now is to get home, get to her baby, because he's been telling her all about Superman, what is it, Spider-Man Lego, and he wants to play Spider-Man Lego. She's like, oh, all about Batman Lego, and he wants to play Batman Lego. She's like, all I really want to do right now is play Batman Lego. Like, that's it. That's all I want to do. And it was surprising to her now that she's out because when she went in, he was 15 months. Now he's five years old. He's He's not a baby. He's a kid. Like, you a kid. You're not a baby. You're not a toddler. You're a kid. She did say later that when she was locked up, she really considered changing Junior's name. One time she was on the phone with her mom while she was locked up and Junior was there and Of course, grandma was like, Jeffrey, come here. And as soon as her mom said Jeffrey, like, her anxiety just shot up. But she had to calm herself down, and she said, listen, this is his name. It's his identity. The name will stay. She said that uh, when she got her freedom, she was extremely grateful for her freedom. But three years had passed, and it was like an entire different world. She felt like she was out of space on a different planet at the time. And that's only three years. So think about these people that come out of prison for years, years, you know? Right. They said that when she got out of prison, it took her a while to just even get an appetite back. Her family was like, okay, you need to, like, at least drink these protein drinks, drink these insured drinks, just so that you can get some nutrition. I understand that you don't have an appetite, but... We, got, we have to keep you healthy. While she was in prison, she was diagnosed with PTSD. Um, and they said that that PTSD diagnosis, diagnosis was both from the death of Jeffrey, that entire event, as well as just the relationship with Jeffrey as a whole. She was suffering from vivid nightmares. And for months while she was in the prison, it was hard for her to sleep. She could not fall asleep. She was still haunted by this man. One of the things that she said really impacted her and she continues to think about today is the fact that she wasn't the only person in that prison that was going through the same exact thing. She got really close with some of the other women, especially the other women that were fighting domestic violent cases. They would sit together, they would read the Bible together, and she said there were four other women that were facing the same charges and the same circumstances that she had, but... The only difference between her and those women was that 
she had support from the outside. She had those domestic violence organizations rallying behind her. The, uh, those other women, there was no big hoorah in the media about their cases. It wasn't a big hoorah about the fact that they were being abused. And out of all of them, she was the only person that was acquitted. And in her mind, she knows the only reason she got that acquit that she was acquitted was because of the support from outside of the prison walls, which I talk about all the time. There's so many people that are in prison, especially women of color, especially black women that are defending themselves. And if they're not, if we have all these domestic violence organizations and we rally our resources around one woman, there's a, there's a thousand women behind them with the same exact story. And it's sad. It really is. Now, when she was asked about it, she said that she would like to have a relationship with Jeffrey's family. Of course, it's going to be super complicated. But at the end of the day, she wants her son to have both sides of his family. She doesn't want him to not know what happened to her dad. And when she was asked about how she was going to continue to explain the circumstances of his dad's passing, she just said that she doesn't want her son to be resentful of her because of what happened. Like, she wants there to be a clear, transparent understanding. That's going to be a really hard thing to do. And But she's really determined to do it because she wants him to still have a well-rounded childhood and a well-rounded family. Well, I said once she got out of prison, she was forced to file bank- bankruptcy. I mean, everything's messed up. Autumn, you're in a lease, first of all. I mean, just your lease alone. You're in a lease and all of a sudden you're in prison, you know? You're... You have a job on Friday. By Monday, you don't have a job no more because you're in prison. Your funds, the ones that weren't stolen by Jeffrey, are all tied up in trying to get you out of prison. And that wasn't enough. Everybody had to put in. She has nothing. She's basically starting over from scratch. Thankfully, there were a lot of like GoFundMe pages and those domestic violence organizations really helped to financially put her on the path to success. She said, quote, My life changed in an instant. Friday, I'm at work. The next day, I'm at the hospital. When you date somebody, you don't plan your life. Two or three laters to be on trial for their death? Like, I would have never thought in a million years when I was younger that I would be a victim of domestic violence. Sometimes I honestly don't feel like I'd have freedom back because of what I went through. Like, she's still haunted by it. She said, even though I'm out, my life will never be the same. Now, I saw her speak on a couple of different panels, and she says that slowly but surely she is able to get her life back on track, but her life will never be the same. She is able to get back in school and still work towards her goals, and because of everybody that rallied behind her, her criminal she no longer has a criminal record, and she can apply for jobs and work nine to five. And now that she's out, one thing that stays in her mind are all the women that were left behind in that prison. So she's dedicated her life, not just to getting herself back on track, but to be a voice for women behind bars. All right. That was a sad one. Eh, Not too sad because she got out. Yeah, but the circumstances were pretty sad. What she had to go through, like... It's really not fair to, like, have to live through that and then to sit in jail while you fight it for three years. Prison. 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 Like. Um, All right, y'all. It's time for... Well, I'm not black. I'm OJ. 
I ain't do it, but if I did, this is how I would have got away with it. When I was thinking about this earlier, I was like, kill him earlier. But I was like, all right, we're all calm down. Yeah. I ain't do it, but if I did, I ain't making shit work for the kids. Lil JJ will be happier. Like Taz said earlier, Lil JJ will be happier knowing that his parents at least can co-parent versus seeing his mom get abused all the time. And I think Sherelle realized that, but she realized it too late. Like, even when she was pregnant, that's the time to... And before things really escalated. It was bad, but it was still at the bottom of escalation. I'm not staying with nobody for the kids. Like, I'd rather be... Your kid needs you to be happy and whole. And your kid needs you to not have nightmares every night. Because what if they have nightmares every night? Your kid needs you to be the best version of you so that you can raise the best version of them. And if that means that you, my son, need a new pappy, sometimes you got to do that, girl. You know what I'm saying? It's really tough because she did what she could do, right? Like, Oh, yeah, absolutely. So We're definitely on the other side looking in. Yeah. And it's like, they tell you, report it to the police. Police don't want to help me. They tell you to leave. He won't let me leave. I'm telling you what's happening. He gets a little misdemeanor, a slap on the wrist, and is right out in the streets. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. You did what you had to do. And I'm glad it worked out for you in the end. Let's not date broke drug dealers. No? Broke drug dealers? No. If oh, you're a I drug thought you dealer, said you should be buying me. I thought you said don't dr- date drug dealers. <laughs> no, don't date broke drug dealers. Like, I saw this meme and it was like, uh, having a drug dealing boyfriend, you see a Chanel bag, he drops the cash for it, you go home, you have sex with him, it's a great time. Not, I got a drug dealing boyfriend, he's stealing my money so they can re-up and break even and I still don't get my investment back and he's stealing all my money. No, we don't do broke drug dealers. Okay, parole or no parole, she's out. And I don't think that she should have had a second jury. Whoever it was that was on that first jury, like, it's on some big bullshit. F you to you, bro. I, listen, so 100% parole, should have never been really charged, should have definitely not had to spend three years behind bars in order to prove the fact that she was being so severely abused by this man. All right, let's read some reviews. Let's go home. So you can leave us a review on many platforms. If you're listening on Spotify, it just has a rating, not a written review, which is totally fine. Make sure that you rate us five stars. If you think that we're less than five stars, you don't have to review. You can just be like, "Mm, I choose not to. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have something amazing to say, awesome. If you don't have anything amazing to say, and you hate this podcast, then recommend it to a person that you hate so that they get to listen to it. <laughs> this one is from Pops RR from Uncle Ronnie. Uncle Ronnie says, my number one podcast. Sisters Who Kill is my favorite podcast. You two are great. It's like I'm sitting around listening to my nieces telling a story. Keep up the good work. You two help my work day go by a little faster. Thank you, Uncle Ronnie. Thank you, Uncle Ronnie. That's actually the one I meant to read. This one says, hey, friends. I love everything about the show, especially the cussing. <laughs> the episode about Marilyn Santana is what got me hooked. I started listening at work two weeks ago, and now I'm low-key mad that I'm all caught up. I went to Instagram and finally put a face to the voice, and y'all are both freaking gorgeous, for real. Thanks, girl. I came straight here to leave a review and tell y'all, hands together, making a heart emoji. 
right back at you. I'm doing it Yay. into the mic. Right back at you. Oh, you're so sweet. <laughs> if you want to follow us online, you can. You can follow us on TikTok, Sisters Who Kill Podcast, on Instagram, where you can see photos from this episode, Sisters Who Kill Pod. Tweet us, Sisters Who Kill. Like us on Facebook. There's a public Facebook page, Sisters Who Kill Podcast. If you're on Facebook and you hang out, there's a discussion group, Sisters Who Kill Podcast discussion group. It is private. You must answer the questions to get in. Stop inviting your friends because when you invite their friends, it shows up on our end that they didn't answer the question. So, baby, they get in declined. Yeah. Anything else, friend? Yes, I do. This is just for the people who really care. Ooh. If you don't. Ooh, you I'm excited. Out. I just want to say congratulations, Mariah, for starting your YouTube channel. Everybody go oh, thank you. check it out. Mar- I was very nervous. Yeah. I think it was really good, though. I watched it, and at first, I was not sure if I was going to finish it because it was 20 minutes, but it really, I wanted to finish it. Like, it was good. You were you were vulnerable, and I think you're going to look back on that video years from now and be like, wow, look how far I've come. So, Aww. it's it's definitely good. I mean, I know it's only one out now, but I like where you're headed. It was relatable. I feel inspired to start my own little challenge, you know? But yeah, good job, y'all. Y'all. It's not YouTube. Taz is not getting on YouTube. No. Just FYI, <laughs> and that is not what that is. <laughs> but I, uh, good job. I'm proud of you. Thanks. Tell them. Tell them where to find it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, it's you know it's on YouTube. <laughs> um, my <laughs> my YouTube name is uh, Mara the Magnificent. So that's M A R A H underscore the magnificent so you guys can check me out there and you know say nice things and hopefully i'll improve week from week to week we also have something really exciting coming up outside of my stuff tazzy are you ready yeah go for it so if you live in atlanta and you have been like you know what i would really love to see mara and taz in person and live well you have the opportunity to do so We're starting a new initiative that we want to continue to grow and work towards and nurture called Sisters Who Give. This has been a heart project of Taz and I that we really have, we do a lot of work on this podcast getting the episodes out. But one thing that we really care about is giving back to the community, especially because of the nature of the cases that we cover. So... It is back to school season, and you know Sister Sukil loves the kids. So we are collecting items to give to the Atlanta mission for the mothers, families, and children that are staying at that shelter. When you go on the Instagram, there will be another post about different items that the Atlanta mission needs. And we ask that you just grab some of those items, come and hang out with us, and donate those items so that Sisters Who Kill can be a part of the solution. On Saturday, July 29th, that means in two weeks, Saturday, July 29th, we will be at Piedmont Park. We'll have our blankets out. It's going to be a nice, chill time. Come and hang out with us. It is very informal. You're not going to get a live show, but you will get to hang out with us. Maybe, I don't know, somebody bring some card games, somebody bring a volleyball. It's really just an informal, chill, meet us hang out, and donate some items for the Atlanta missions so that Sisters Who Kill can give back to the community. This is our first event, and we hope that Sisters Who Give will become a larger platform for us to just make the world a better place. Do not show up empty-handed. 
yes, do not show up empty-handed because I will say something to you. And we will have a list of different items that they need at the Atlanta mission. Some of them we didn't even think were a need, like allergy medic- medication. Make sure that it's closed, that it's sealed. New. That's it, new, closed, and sealed. Socks. You know that they constantly need socks. We will post a list of items that are needed at the Atlanta mission. Please make sure that you show up with some goods to give back because as a podcast that talks about true crime it seems like we always talk about the negative even though you know we naturally sprinkle in a little humor but it's really great when we can say that we are not part of the telling of these sad stories that we're actually doing something to better the community and we hope to continue to do this this is our first one and we hope that each event of sisters who give will get larger and larger and larger absolutely Outside of that, talk to us, we talk back. Bye.